God, as we open your word tonight, I pray that you give us um, clarity to hear you. So, Father, let the meditations of my heart and words of my mouth be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hey, just so you know, next month, we're, next month, next week, we're starting our Christmas series. In the church, Christmas begins the Sunday after Thanksgiving, typically, for a season which is called Advent, and which, you need to know, I'm an Advent junkie. Um, I emailed Sierra like three weeks ago, and I said, here's what I need you to know. The Christmas series starts November 29th. It is all Christmas all the time until like the Sunday after Christmas. We don't sing any of this other music all the rest of the year. We're singing Christmas stuff. And she was kind of like, oh, okay. And uh, I, I get a little bit Nazi-ish about this, and, and, but we're super excited about this series because it's again built on this idea of how is Jesus' birth an interruption? How is Jesus' birth and how is Christmas dangerous? How is Christmas for everyone? How is Christmas waiting? And so we'll dive into that next week. Um, some of you will be, be tapped to uh, light the Advent wreath, which is like one of my favorite things that we do this time of year too, and so you'll be hearing from me at least some of you will hopefully hear from me like, I don't know, this week, because we gotta light the Advent wreath next week and uh, go from there. But in the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series on one of Paul's letters. Ooh, did it just die again? This keynote is also on the desktop. I wonder what happened. We've been in a series on uh, the fruit of the Spirit, which are this list of virtues that Paul has in Galatians chapter five, and we're finishing off uh, this series tonight by looking at those last verses. If you're here for the first time, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, I just want to give you a refresher about what we've seen. What Paul is doing in this particular section of Galatians is about 10 or 12 verses. At the end of Galatians chapter 5, Paul is unpacking the dynamics of spiritual transformation. He's trying to help us understand how we grow in a spiritual sense. And so in the first week, we looked at one of the most important questions we could ever answer, which is this, what does Jesus want? And the answer simply is that Jesus wants to have constant contact with us. My wife uses this software called Constant Contact at Work. I think it's a handy name. That Jesus is looking, thanks Dylan, to have constant contact with us. And that as we are in contact and in communion is another word for it, with him, uh, something begins to change in us. Some virtue bears itself out, and that virtue is love and joy and peace, that God's work in our life produces this more in our relationships, more in our lives. The second week, we looked at how there's kind of two desires in us. Maybe you remember the cartoon growing up where like on Bugs Bunny's shoulder, there'd be like a little angel and a little devil, that there's two desires inside of us. And one of those desires is given to us by God, and it's the desire to please him and to grow to be more like Jesus. But then there's these other desires that are kind of constantly at war and within us. And yet over time, as we pursue Jesus more and more, some of those desires go away, and the desires that Jesus are trying to produce in us come to us from the inside out. And we had this important caveat last week where what we need to know is that the way of Jesus isn't found in just doing the right thing externally. You can do that. You can go to church every week and you can give lots of money and you can serve and you can be in a small, you can do all sorts of Christian things. You can pack one million of the 44 million Operation Christmas Child boxes yourself and yet do it in such a way that you never actually have any contact with Jesus, which is, as a side note, rather terrifying. And so what Jesus wants in that constant communion with us is for these virtues to kind of bear out from the inside out. That 
as he dwells inside of us, as we kind of engage in this battle of our desires, as we engage with him sincerely, he produces faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And then we hit this last section this week where Paul is going to address, I think, the most important thing that we need to think about when it comes to this stuff, which is how do we work out our salvation without working for our salvation? In other words, what is the connection between faith and effort? Um, One of the things that I'm learning about adulthood is that it is mostly contained and made up of effort. Uh, We spent, count it, four hours in our yard on Friday afternoon doing very adult things like trimming back grasses and mowing the yard and to my neighbor's delight, uh, finally like breaking up and getting rid of all of the leaves that for the last like, I don't know, year have been blowing into their yard. I have all retirees on all sides of me, but all across the street, but, and maybe this, the, the people who are here, they work, but they still have a ton of time to do this, I don't know. They all like to do what's called, here's your word for the week, leaf peeping. Did you know it's called that it is, which is kind of a creepy term. And uh, so, I mean, every three hours, I hear like a lawnmower going or a leaf blower. And can I tell you that every time that happens, all I think is, would you just give me a second? <laughs> okay, I am working, I'm, I'm going to get there. And they're kind of giving me the stink eye. And, and so we got out there, we did it. And then we like cleaned the house for like four hours on Saturday. Adulthood is work which is why every kid that I meet that like wants to grow up so bad, I'm like, don't do it, it's all a lie. You know, like, st- stay young, <laughs> it's, e- it's easier. The other funny thing about maybe, especially being part of my generation, is that we were very much told that if we do work that we wanna do, work that is meaningful, we'll always like our work. And let me be clear, I love my job. I love that I get to spend the, my time doing what I get to do week in and week out, and yet, Just to be honest, there are moments that work is just work. That you spend 50, 60 hours a week, you just are putting in the time. The problem with that is sometimes we end up working for results that we don't intend. Sometimes we work really, really hard and there's still like leaves, like now just in the corners of my bushes. You know, and not enough that I'm really that obsessed to go and get them, but enough that I'm annoyed by their presence. You do all this work for my job to kind of build into people's lives, and sometimes it doesn't go as expected. We're going to maybe do something you've never done at church before, and it's this. I want you to get in a group of three or four. And when you do, I want you to share about something that you worked really, really hard to achieve, but the results weren't as you planned. But something that, in, that you just gave your blood, sweat, and tears to, but you didn't get the results you wanted. Is the task clear? On your mark, get set, go. What I want to talk a little bit tonight about what happens in our spiritual life when we work really, really hard in the wrong direction, because when we do that, we're going to get the results that we're not planning. When we work in the, maybe even the wrong way, no matter how hard we work spiritually, It's not going to get us to the destination we want to go. We're going to look at the last little bit of Galatians 5, roughly verses 24 through 26, 7, 8. And uh, here's what it says. We're actually using the message translation, which is different than the blue Bible underneath of you. But this is what it says. Legalism, Paul writes, is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. 
Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good. It's crucified. Since this is the kind of life we've chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives because each of us is an original. Paul begins this text with this word legalism, which is really an important category in the New Testament. Webster defines it as strict adherence to religious code for salvation instead of relying on faith. I think that's a good start. Legalism sprang up in the early church, especially here in the church of Galatia, which is what the letter to Galatians is written, who is the letter to, written to. And it sprang up when Jewish people who came to accept Christ as the Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for, also brought with them the idea that they had to adhere to the Old Testament law, just like Jews always had, in order to be saved. That they couldn't have eternal life with God forever unless they got circumcised, which if you don't know what circumcision means, you can go home and ask your mom. And unless they followed the law. And so throughout Galatians, Paul is fighting this idea in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, which is, this is actually from the translation in front of you, Paul writes, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I, I call legalism uh, the ninja uh, be, because it lurks in the shadow for all of us who know Jesus. Legalism eventually turns the gospel upside down because instead of where, where the gospel says to you, I am accepted, therefore I obey, legalism tells you you obey in order to be accepted. Instead of saying you are loved, therefore you obey, it's I obey, therefore I am loved. It turns the gospel upside down. And when it does that, it perverts it, it breaks it in half. And, and here's the deal. Again, it's the ninja of the faith. Because even if, you, whether you've been walking, walking with Jesus for a long time, or maybe you've just started, you're not even sure, legalism comes out of the shadows and ka it gets you. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, if you were raised in the church like I was, it's easier for you to slip into legalism when you start to think that all of the ways that you've sacrificed for Jesus, that all the good things that you've done get to be worn on your chest like a badge of honor. Legalism slips in when I begin to think that God is impressed with how good I am. Now, on the other hand, maybe if you're new to the faith or you've just maybe not had the partnership and mentoring that you needed, it's easy for legalism to slip in It's easy to slip into legalism because you start to think, well, I work really, really hard for everything else. Therefore, I must have to work really, really hard for this. I've been going to the gym for about six months, and every month or so, 
I get a new program, uh, which is always the sound of death. By the way, that's tomorrow morning. And I get a new program with all sorts of exercises I've never done before, and then I go in and I do them, and by the end of the program, I'm really good at them. And I'm like, I love this program. And just when you get to that place, you're like, I love this program. All of a sudden you get a new program and you're back to the place of, I really, really want to die. But the the message of working out is like, if I just work out hard enough, if I grip my teeth, if I put in the energy, if I do these things, I get the results I want. And and it's easy as a new believer to have this idea in your head that, 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 that goes like this. I just have to work really hard on this. If I choose love this month and patience next month and maybe spend three months on gentleness because that's especially hard for me and you know what, I really am anxious so let's spend a good five months really working out that muscle of peace. If I do that, by heck, by 2017 I'll be perfect. When we try to exert our own effort to please God as opposed to walking with him by faith, we've fallen into legalism. Sometimes it's hard to keep track of. I don't know if you know this, but here's your public safety announcement. Uh, there's an E. coli outbreak at Chipotle, and it takes, E. coli takes anywhere between one and 10 days to incubate in your system. And so if you've had Chipotle in the last week or so, get near a toilet fast, uh, because here it comes. Your life is about to get amazing. Here's the crazy thing about E. coli is you have it, and you don't even know you have it. Crazy thing about E. coli is that you have it in your system and you're sick, you're, you're ill, you have a virus, and you don't even know it. And legalism works just like this. Gets into our system and we don't even know that we have it. And so I thought it might be helpful to talk about what are the symptoms. I think one of the symptoms of legalism is this self-judgment. We develop a sense Legalism is in your system if you have a sense that your worth or your worthlessness, that your self-esteem and self-satisfaction or lack thereof rest on your own works. So you go to church and you worship and you get into a small group and you say Christian things and you do Christian things and you feel awesome. I mean, you're thinking, I'm really into this Jesus thing. Like, I am on top of it. And then you go home and you get in a fight with your spouse or you go and you, you look at porn, or you lie, or you cheat, or you get that pride re- reaching up into your heart again, and all of a sudden now you feel terrible. See, the problem with self-judgment is that it puts us on an emotional roller coaster of our own making. And so you're up, and you're down, and you're up, and you're down, and you're up, and you're down, and in the words of Ron Burgundy, it puts you in a glass box of emotion. And it becomes a prison because here's the problem. When you ride this roller coaster up and down, it gets exhausting. And so serving the Lord and going to church and doing these things, there's no joy in it anymore. Because, why, I mean, I feel terrible about myself half the time and the other up to half the time I feel awesome and that's just exhausting. And so you become more angry and less odd. You become more caustic and less compassionate. This leads to the second symptom of legalism, which Paul wrote about. He says, this means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. Another symptom of legalism is when we start to compare. And there's really, here's the problem with comparison, there's two ways that this happens. Either we put ourselves above another person. We say, I am so obviously better than blank. I am so much more caring. I've got it so much more together. Here's the really dangerous thing that happens. We put it 
We put ourselves over people that don't even know Jesus. And so we get on Facebook and we yell about what the non-Christian world is doing with their red Starbucks cups that don't have little baby Jesus pasted all over them or something, I don't know. And we put ourselves above others and we find everybody lacking. Here's the other thing that we do though, then we might actually put ourselves beneath someone else. Because you meet someone and you go, they're so committed. They're so like Jesus. They so get it that I don't even feel like I'm a Christian in comparison. And in both cases, we compare and we fail. And here's the real, real problem with legalism, especially when it gets into comparing, is that it pits the body of Christ against one another. And so I only succeed when Mitch fails. And Steph only fails when I succeed. And so now I'm competing against everybody else to make sure that I am more humble, that I am more righteous, that I am more loving, that I am more compassionate. I gotta make sure that I'm more compassionate than anybody else in this room. And so then what happens is I, I wanna fight you. I, I wanna best you. You see, Christ calls us together into community so that we can resource one another so that I can see in a person love and loyalty and kindness and say I wanna be like that person, I wanna spend time with that person, I wanna ask them questions about how I can grow that in my life and instead I'm, well they're so much more loyal, I need to go over here and do that, I need to work hard. It's not what he calls us to do. See the heart of the gospel is to free us from legalism and it does so in two ways. First, it remove, it, legalism tells us that we're really not all that bad. Legalism says you, you can work it out on your own. You know, just by building yourself a little program of how to get nicer, you will be fine. And, and here's the problem, Tim Keller, I love this line, the gospel is this, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. I was teaching a class a few weeks ago and we did a tool on how to measure maybe some of the places where we are spiritually and how we can grow. And after taking this assessment and kind of measuring where he was at, somebody in the class just said out loud in front of everybody, I'm despicable, and, and <laughs> which feel bad. Everybody laughed, but here's the truth, we're all despicable. You see, the gospel is not about making okay people better, it's about making dead people alive. And it's only when we grasp the reality that we are drowning and need saved. This quote by Tim Keller comes into effect because we want the second half. We want to be loved and accepted in Christ more than we ever dared hope, but we'd like to skip past the part where that we're more flawed and broken and in need of him. But what the gospel does is it said, hey, here's the bad news. You're in trouble. But see, on the other hand, legalism also tries to take Jesus out of the picture because if I'm not drowning, I don't actually need somebody to come throw me a life life preserver. If I'm not dead, I don't need resuscitated. So why would I need Jesus? And yet the text says, among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good. You see, when Jesus died through faith, we died with him. And when Jesus rose again through faith, we were with him when he rose again. And so Jesus creates in us a new humanity when we step across the line of faith that begins to move from the inside out. 
And that's what's so tremendously important. This is how Christianity is different than every other religion in the, in the world. We don't have to work for it because it's already ours. You see, Hinduism, Islam, even Judaism has at its core this idea that I have to work for it, that I have to do something to earn God's favor. And the way Jesus says, no, this is the big rock of our faith. And so the question becomes, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> See, the, opposite of, uh, the total opposite of legalism is this idea of, and here's your fun word for the antinomianism, which means no law. It means that I can just live however the heck I want. And see, that's not what Jesus is inviting us to either. So what am I supposed to do? I mean, even Paul says in these verses uh, that we're supposed to work out, maybe it's not there, it's not. We're supposed to work out this salvation in every detail of our lives. He says, not just to hold it an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts. Listen, you have to come to a moment in your journey where Jesus is something that you made a choice about. There has to be a moment that you quit playing games with him. There has to be a moment when it's not just about the warm feelings or any of that. It's when you actually said, it's not about a sentiment in my heart. It's not an idea in my head. It's someone that I want to know. And Paul says that we need to work out its implications. I mean, what are we supposed to do? I'm pretty sure that for the people of Jesus, there is no more law. I may disagree with this when we get into our series on Exodus, like in February, but for now, I'm pretty sure that for the people of Jesus, there is no more legal code except this. Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So the only commandment Jesus has for us is this that we love him and that we love others. And we do it out of a motivation for love for him. Jesus says, I've loved you even as the fathers loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. You see, I was raised in a house that made you kind of feel like maybe sometimes that you had to work it. Maybe you were. You had to work, you had to behave in order for your parents to love you. And so we hear that, it's like, oh, well, good. Jesus is just like my cray-cray family where I have to do the right thing in order to get his affection not how it works, because Jesus is entering into a relationship with us where we can remain, and we just do the right thing because we love him. I always make people uncomfortable because I ask, I'll say, so does he know the Lord? And they'll say, oh yeah, he's a Christian. And then I always respond with, well, does he love Jesus? I'm always asking girls this. If you're like in a small group, when I was in youth group, they'd be like, oh, I'm dating this guy. Well, is he a Christian? Well, he goes to church. Well, does he love Jesus? See, it gets down to it because they have to, they can't, kind of. See, having a relationship with Jesus means that we do this with him and that we follow this code that, and it simplifies it. Now, here's the problem with the code. Love God, love your neighbor. Sounds simple. The problem is, is that we're dumb. <laughs> we're real stupid. And I don't know about you, when I don't know how to do something, I go on YouTube to figure it out. We flipped a house this summer. I had no idea who do any of these things. I'm on YouTube left and right, like making sure I'm not like killing myself when I'm installing a light, you know? Because evidently there's a hot wire and that even sounds scary. And 
And so you watch a YouTube video, the whole Bible is instructional YouTube videos that help us live into this law that Jesus has. That's not even really a law, it's just a way of being that he's invited us into. And so when we work, I mean, yeah, there are moments that loving people is, is really hard. There are moments when being kind is really, really hard, and yet what Jesus says is that somehow in being near him and engaging in these activities with him in the power and presence of Jesus, it's no longer about me pulling myself up with my bootstraps to get where I need to be. It's about knowing him. That from the inside out, Jesus develops in me things like goodness, a deep integrity of soul, that through being near him, that by following these commandments, that Jesus says, I'll develop an integrity that I need, that I'm the same in every circumstance. This is what the legalist can't do. The legalist never has integrity because they choose some rules to follow and not others. Jesus says, well, we push out kindness from the inside out. There's this thing called Midwestern nice. I don't know if you've got it. I think we all do because we're from Northeast Ohio. And, oh, isn't he nice? When I was in Bible college, he'd say something like this. He's a great guy, loves the Lord, can't stand him. Nice guy, loves the Lord, never want to hang out with him. Great guy, loves the Lord, don't put him on your intramural team. Can't catch a frisbee to save his life. See, nice, nice is only skin deep. Kindness goes to the soul. And that's not something a legalist can do because they're not interested in seeing a person's soul. They're interested in just getting by. This one says gentleness, but it actually should say patience. The legalist can never be patient with someone because you're always, you're never meeting their standard in the time period that you should meet it. And yet the way of Jesus calls us to a patience where here's this person. They've not fully arrived yet. And I'm okay with that because I've not fully arrived either. Jesus is so good to me. He's so patient. He's so kind. Jesus wants to produce in us a new kind of life, and there is effort in it, but when we do it with him, when we do the next thing, here, you want to know how to follow Jesus tomorrow? Just do the next thing in the presence and power of Jesus. I mean, live like he was actually there with you. And over time, these things, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, they come out of us. That's what he's about. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that we need you and that we often, God, I just pray for the person that is viewing themselves as less than or more than, and I just pray, Father, that you'd free them of that legalism. God, I pray that you would just give them a deep sense of your acceptance, and it's from that place, out of knowing you, of loving you, that they do what you're asking, not so that they can earn something, not so they can get it right for themselves. Help us to replace comparison and self-judgment and all of this with just a deep-seated love for you. Free us from religion. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Every week at Regen, we respond to God by communion. And we're doing that a little bit different. We also respond to God through giving. And so two things. If you plan on giving tonight, what you give helps us interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. Um, it helps us pay for coffee cups and coffee to give a college student just to let them know that God's good. You can use the offering envelope in your program if you've got one. We've actually run out, which is a good problem to have. And you can drop it in one of these baskets on either side as you take communion. Um, how communion will work is I'll stand about right here with a basket of bread and you can come forward and grab a piece out of the basket and then there'll be someone standing here and there'll be someone standing here and you can just dip that in the cup, eat it and go back to your seat and then we'll sing together. Um, communion is the way, not that we don't just remember, it's not just recalling, it's an act of um, reliving of experience of tasting and seeing the grace of Jesus. And so, um, Betsy, would you come and, um, not to totally throw you, but Ken, would you help me too, please? Um, I'm going to take one of those and you can just stand maybe on that side for me. And here's what we say. We say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Pour out your spirit, Father, on these simple gifts of bread and cup, that they might become to us the body and blood of Christ, that we might become the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Table is open.
hope uh, you were interrupted tonight, and I hope that you have the opportunity to interrupt somebody else's life uh, tonight or this week too. Um, you're loved. I can't wait to see you next week for the start of our Christmases series. In the meantime, we have snacks, we have coffee. Hang around. We'll see you next week. In Christ alone.